there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. AA officially introduced a new rating called the PG-13 as a way of giving parents more options to be confused about what their kids might see in a theater. The National Minimum Drinking Age Act made it illegal for anyone under 21 to buy or consume alcohol in any state that wanted federal highway funding. Walter Mondale and Geraldine Ferraro were chosen as the Democratic presidential and vice presidential nominees, even as Vanessa Williams was asked to resign as Miss America over nude photos that appeared in Penthouse magazine. And finally, George Michael released Careless Whispers, a single, because life was freaking awesome in July of 1984. everybody, I'm Drew McQueenie, and as always, welcome to 80s All Over. I'm joined by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. What's up, Scott? Walter Mondale won one state. Mondale beast mode. Yeah, I didn't know much about politics back then, and uh, I actually thought Ronald Reagan was a good president. That's how stupid I was. <laughs> you were uh, 13. It's okay. June 1984, I'm so happy to see the way people reacted, because I think for so many people, so many of their favorite films got repped that month. Even if you didn't love something, they seemed like they were pretty happy with how he handled it. A friend of mine from high school, it was complained that we didn't mention the song, Ghostbusters. I know, several so, people have brought that up. And uh, it's not my favorite song in the film. I really like, um, I believe it's Magic. That's, I think, my favorite sounding song in the Ghostbusters soundtrack. I'll just take Elmer Bernstein's beautiful, schlubby Walter Matthau of a score. Yeah. That's what I like that's, about That's a great description of it because it's it's like John Williams' Otis theme. It shambles the same way. Like, it fits Bill Murray perfectly. I was writing that Ghostbusters book, I went to Ray Parker Jr.'s house in Encino, and he has a room that is just the Ghostbusters room, and it is covered with every gold record he got from every country on the planet. And it was, I have to say, a treat. And clearly, that song paid for everything in Ray Parker Jr.'s world. It was very clear when I was there that Ghostbusters will always be the thing. I ain't afraid of no ghosts. There's also something that was going on this month that really made a difference at the box office. And it even shows up on box office reports from that month because they made so much money. It was the studio sneak preview. Fox and Universal both really leaned on them this summer. And this month, both Revenge of the Nerds and Cloak and Dagger, Revenge of the Nerds ended up playing two different weekends because Fox was so confident they had an audience hit. Let me explain how that would work. The new Harry Potter film just came out and they would say, oh, uh, come to see Harry Potter and this Fantastic Beast sequel part 9A and stay to see blank for free. So it was essentially a double feature. When did they stop doing those around the mid 90s, I think? But my yeah, but my most formative one was like you just mentioned, um, go to see Last Starfighter, stay to see Cloak and Dagger brand new. And I was at that one. Wow, what a great night that was. 
Well, we'll we'll wrap with that, but let's get started this month uh, since we're talking about re-releases and odd things. Uh, what did Disney put back in theaters this month, Scott? It's coming your way, The Jungle Book. It's the unforgettable story of the boy who was raised by wolves, befriended by a bear, only to end up in the wildest adventure of all. Look out! This summer, you're invited to look out for the most fighting, fighting, swinging, flinging jungle tale ever. Somebody do something with that kid. And it's only at a theater near you. Walt Disney's classic, The Jungle Book, rated G. Now playing at a theater near you. You know one thing I noticed, Drew, over June and now July? There is a definite dearth of animated features. This was that era where animation was dead, dude. There's nothing this summer for little kids. And I think it was the beginning of that sort of mad scramble to just put the teenager at the center of everything. So little kids really were kind of left out. And we'll get into what passed as kids programming this month. Kids were not well served this summer. Where would you place the Jungle Book on the pantheon of uh, animated classics from Disney? I'm a big fan of that era. Really love the songs. And it's the last time that Disney's hand was on any of that stuff. And even though he passed, like his influence is still in the animation and in some of the story choices and in the projects that have been initiated while he was still alive. King Louie's song, I Want to Be Like You, is one of my favorite Disney songs. And I'm a big fan of the Disney heroes like Mowgli or the little girl from the rescuers who look like just teeny little twigs, little bean poles who are just all angles and elbows. And those kids make me laugh so hard in these Disney films. And the animation is always so great for them. Arthur and Sword in the Stone is the same way. Mowgli is one of my favorites. His relationship with Blue is great. Those vocal performances by the adults in the film. Phil Harris is so good in that oh, movie. Oh, he's great as Baloo. My, uh, my sister brought this up on the bonus episode that it was like you kind of knew in the back of your head that these were older cartoons. They were re-released, but that didn't really register that much because to me, I, I was into the Jungle Book as if it was brand new. We had the album. Uh, it was like a big double album that Disney put out. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of a shame that this era of re-releasing things for the big screen is kind of past. Uh, um, so, hey, Scott, this next movie, it's funny. I had people tell me that they saw this as an art house movie, which says a lot about what the art house was in 1984. When and where did you finally lay eyes on the gods must be crazy? The unusual story of Key, the Bushman, as he travels to the edge of the earth to return the gods' mistake. A most unpredictable journey, fraught with dangerous gorillas, a modest school teacher, a dedicated scientist, a tree bearing strange fruit, bizarre machinery. The gods must be crazy. An epic comedy of absurd proportions. Yeah, this is a great fable from South Africa that a tribesman in Africa finds in a bottle that was carelessly thrown out of a passing airplane. He is tasked with throwing it off a cliff. And it's just a very clever idea. I'm of mixed opinion on this because I, I think there is a part of this film that I like in a childlike sort of very simple, very broad way. But Jamie always, the guy who directed it is a white South Africaner. And he talks about them in ways that are not, it's not cruel. It's certainly not ugly, but it is condescending and very colonial. And it is definitely a movie made before South Africa had to start contending with what it was. It's fascinating to see the way violent revolution between the governments and rebels is treated as slapstick comedy in this. That segment is a bit awkward. It gives me an insight into like if you were in South Africa and you're reading the horrible, terrible things about American politics and then you see a movie where Americans are mocking their own politics. You're like, oh, I see. It gives you a little insight into like they are mocking their own culture in a way. But your argument is it's Jamie always mocking a culture that's not his. That's what's so complicated is the white South Africaners were the people in power at that point, And it was their country. Yeah, he essentially is showing you how it felt for white Afrikaners at that point. You know, the two main characters, the guy and the girl who sort of are the white Western faces that get put on everything are 
just as broadly drawn and just as goofy as anybody else in the film. So it's certainly not like he's mocking just one group of people. Everything is a cartoon. Everything is ridiculous. Everything is very silly. And for a lot of us, uh, this was one of the first glimpses we got of what modern Africa looked like at all. Like, it's not a terrible portrait of that. It had the same sort of cultural impact that Crocodile Dundee did, but on a smaller scale, which was, here's this comedy from another country and from another culture, and for a moment, hey, we're all going to get really into this because of this comedy. It was a commercial hit in America and around the world. It was it sold everywhere. But the idea of this as an art house film makes me laugh because it is it makes Benny Hill look subtle. And I saw it in the late 80s uh, and I enjoyed it very much. And then I watched the sequel. Who boy, that is not a good film. And you know what, Drew? The gods must be crazy if they would allow someone to make a film as vile as Hollywood hot tubs. water has never been as much fun as it is in Hollywood Hot Tub. See Hollywood Hot Tub, but only if you can take a little joke. Here's the thing about Chuck Vincent. He doesn't even have the courage to be a real pornographer. So he's not funny enough to make a real comedy, and he's not brave enough to make real porn. I'm getting a little tired of, you're going to be thrown in jail or blank. Okay, and in this movie, this guy is going to get thrown in jail or... He has to repair hot tubs for his uncle. <laughs> yeah, which is, boy, that's a weird either or. I'm going to take the hot tubs, guaranteed. The opening sequence, he and his buddies go up to the Hollywood sign, and they alter the Hollywood sign, and that's why he's going to go to jail. How do you think they accomplish that? Through charisma? I'm looking at it, and clearly the helicopter shots, they really did that to the Hollywood sign. It's not a special effect. Chuck Vincent didn't have any money to do like a, an effect, and I wondered how the fuck did they not go to jail for doing that? Well, the answer is they didn't do it. It was done in 1976 as a prank by a kid from CSUN. And I guess that's just helicopter footage they bought and repurposed because the Hollyweed prank has actually been played many, many times here in Hollywood where people have altered it like that. But that's a real one. Don't you think you owe a little bit of apology to Chuck Vincent for finding that footage? Uh, no. No, not really. He's still a cheap slapdash near pornographer. Okay, but Drew, what what happens once he's employed by his uncle's hot tub company? There's surely a plot must kick in at some point. Oh, yeah. The plot is that there's a lot of naked people. No, you don't mean naked people. You mean topless women. That's what I mean. I mean, to well, there's, there's a lot of butt. And that's always played as, oh, no, now I have to see a guy naked. Oh, that's not funny. I came here to see boobies. Again, like with Bachelor Party, I don't know how upset you can get at a movie called Hollywood Hot Tubs. It's pretty much calling it shot from day one, uh, but it's a terrible version of that. If all you want is that, Chuck Vincent's not the guy to even give you the decent version of that. Ooh, from one great filmmaker to another, Scott, let's shift into another gear for a terrific thriller from the dynamic, wonderful, moral compass I think he's being facetious. Of Michael Winner. Let's talk about Scream for Help. Christy was an ordinary teenager. <laughs> but she hated her stepfather. Oh, shit. Paul. Well. Mom? I caught him cheating on you. This bull asked me to pick her up at her house because she couldn't get to the agency. That's bullshit. Hi, Christy. Alone and afraid, at the mercy of ruthless killers, it was too late to scream for help. Then she escaped the terror that invaded her home. See, scream for help, the new nightmare from Michael Winner, director of Death Wish. I'm starting to think Michael Winner's not a good person. No, Michael Winner is a uh, sleazebag, but uh, the reason I gave this more than half a shot is because of the gentleman who got the writing credit, written by a young Tom Holland. It's basically like, what if a pervert remade Shadow of a Doubt? And, and <laughs> That's great. It really feels like a bottom drawer. What else you got? This guy, you're hot right now. You just wrote Psycho 2. What, you're hot. This is one of the dumbest criminal enterprises I've ever seen in a movie. I don't totally understand what anybody thinks is happening in this. Drew, I tell you, hey, your stepfather might be a murderer. 
And you're like, haha, shut up. That's not funny. And then I say, no, but listen. And then you start talking about lemonade. Lemonade. <laughs> that cool, refreshing drink. You know, like you don't react like a normal human would. That's just bad writing. I feel bad watching this movie because for 99% of it, I would really like for someone to kill Christy. She is awful. She is a terrible, terrible character poorly written and horrifically played by Rachel Kelly. Obnoxious. Well, I'm glad you said it because I don't like to be unkind and you get to be bad cop. I'll be bad cop on this one. It's a terrible performance. To pull this off, you have to have a character who can really take you through some weird shifts in tone and some weird shifts in behavior. And for this movie to work at all, Christy has to be sympathetic. And she just comes across as an abrasive awful, miserable. She's one of the Heathers. It's just she doesn't have any other Heathers to be mean with. So it doesn't work. John Paul Jones does the score because, of course, he does the Michael Winter film, and I think they had some deal. It's even a terrible score. It is pretty much wall-to-wall inept. The dialogue is Tommy Wiseau territory. What's she doing here? She's going to make blueberry pancakes. She makes great pancakes. I can make pancakes. Kid makes them better. How do you know? You ever taste my pancakes? It's like a weird tone for that question to arrive in. <laughs> it's a it's a bad, bad movie. You're making the segues too easy, Drew. Speaking of bad <laughs> movies, let's discuss Meatballs Part Two. I was a big Richard Mulligan fan, so I was at least halfway ready to enjoy it. Look, it's not a good movie at all, but I I was fine with it just being a meatballs knockoff with Richard Mulligan as the counselor until something happens. And then it takes a left turn into the worst movie. I remember seeing this in theaters. I must have known ahead of time that Bill Murray was not in it, because if I had been surprised by that fact, I would have been livid. And I think at that point, the like in-name-only sequel was relatively new concept to me. And I'll tell you, Drew, not a fan of the in-name-only sequel. Yeah, I don't understand why you would do that, because you know you're going to infuriate 90% of the audience. Poisoning your own well, exactly. Yeah, it's so bad, and it's so cheap, and it's such a weird knockoff. Casting John Larroquette in this movie, in the role they cast him in, feels like they're ripping stripes off, sort of? And Police Academy, kind of? This movie has a character in which he has to either go to juvenile hall or summer camp. Typically, what you want to do with somebody who you might have to send to jail is ask them to be in charge of children for the summer. What crime would you have to commit to get that sentence? In the world of Meatballs 2, God only knows. It's such a backwards thought. The film was uh, produced as Summertime. Then Columbia owned it and put the Meatballs title on it. It's just a collection of bad jokes. There's a running joke in this movie that Kim Richards is super, super, super naive. Oh, yeah. She's a real nice girl and she's never seen a penis. So there's also a running thread in this where they are clearly ripping off E.T. If it's funny, you'd call it a parody of E.T. If you, It's not funny. And I agree with you that it's not funny. So you're calling it a ripple. It's a parody. But the way she was behaving and how naive she was, I truly thought at one point, maybe they're going to connect the dots and she's also from outer space because she's so backwards. But nope, this movie does not connect any dots. This movie is a random collection of terrible ideas. This is a comedy that you would expect from the director of Eyes of a Stranger. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And those the, the whole thing with the kids and the alien, God, that alien is such a piece of shit. Out of nowhere, probably because E.T. was the smash hit, we have what is arguably the first E.T. parody in another feature film. Can you think of another E.T. parody that came before Meatballs Part 2? I think the only other reference to it so far has been Still Smoking with the extended E.T. the extra testicle joke. But oh, yeah, yeah. And this is just as funny. Da, 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 da. <laughs> and now, a special event called, Drew saw this, but I didn't because it's super obscure and I've never seen Last Night at the Alamo. Don't you understand that? I mean, I might as well be talking to this goddamn wall over here. Well, you just go and talk to that wall then. All right, I will. You don't understand, do you? I mean, this is the last night at the Alamo, goddammit. Goddammit! What the hell's the matter with you? 
Uh, yeah, very obscure, and for a long time completely out of circulation. It does not surprise me to hear that it was Lewis Black from the Austin Chronicle who helped supervise the sort of return to pop culture of this movie. It feels like a proto-slacker. It is definitely an Austin movie in every way. Although it's set in Houston, it feels like Austin. It was shot in Austin. It looks like Austin. And there's just a vibe that in Slacker they have, which is that sort of aimless, sort of ramshackle, loose, kind of charming, kind of hyper-witty, kind of asshole thing. And I don't know. It, it's funny to see now on the other side of Austin having its moment and, and blowing up and becoming what it is. Because it feels like they're saying goodbye to a way of life that is sort of smaller town Texas. The last night of this bar that everybody goes to and the various characters who come to the bar are all trying to find ways to keep the bar open. Uh, it is written by Kim Henkel, who uh, is probably best known, Scott, for... The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I will uh, throw in a plug. He produced a film that I also produced called Found Footage 3D. And I would argue this is definitely as much a reflection of who he is as... Uh, Texas Chainsaw is. Highly unlikely that Mr. Henkel listens to this podcast, but if he does, I apologize for not emailing you and asking you for a copy of Last Night at the Alamo, sir. Eagle Pinnell is the director, and it is worth tracking down, particularly if you have a love of sort of Austin indie cinema. And I do think Richard Linklater must have seen this and must have been a fan, because it's got that vibe. And that's it. Um... <laughs> Uh, I do think it's an interesting back-to-back -back double feature with our next film, though, because it's small town, it's bars, it's those conversations that spin out of control. Last Night at the Alamo is the good version. The not-so-good version goes by the title Roadhouse 66. Murray, Murray. Now there's this country boy who meets a roadhouse girl. He's never going to be the same again. And there's this rich city fellow. Yes, Dad. I know, Dad. Who finds himself a small-town girl. Feels nice. Big breasts aren't important to me. Jesus. Sir, I think you're overreacting. Drop by Roadhouse 66, where you'll be sure to get your kicks. What the hell is this, dude? Judge Reinhold driving cross country to meet his father in Florida because they're going to open a fast food chain and he runs afoul of some no good nicks. And then he befriends Willem Dafoe, a former rock star and rebel with a cause. What cause? To get laid. And it was it's one of those that took me four or five tries to get through it because it's just so glacial. It was probably the third or fourth time that I realized, wait a minute, this is about a race? There's a race in this film? <laughs> and there is. Ultimately, the movie is about a race that this kid decides to enter to show up some assholes in a little town in the middle of nowhere. But it takes a long time to get to the point and to become a movie about him entering the race. And Willem Dafoe, I'm baffled how he did this. Like, this seems like it's right in the middle of Willem Dafoe becoming Willem Dafoe. And same thing with Judge Reinhold. They both have giant movies this year that they're in and major, major roles in them. So this one baffles me where it came from or any of that. Where did Judge Reinhold come from? Uh, I was just always fascinated by his career as he always seemed to shine most as the second or third banana. But of course, many producers would try to make him a star and we'll get to those later. Yeah. Well, that stuff, once we get to them trying to make him a star, it's an odd choice. And I, this happens in a lot of cases in the eighties where somebody's in a supporting role. We really like them because we really like the movie and it's a good fit and they're really good in that role. And then all of a sudden nine movies in a row where they try to make that person the star it doesn't always work. One thing that I'll say about this film that I absolutely hated is they clearly did not have the money to get the rock songs that they wanted. So they had somebody write some of the worst, like <laughs> Born to Run, Springsteen kind of knockoffs. There's one song in this movie where they scream the phrase crawling from the wreckage 45 times. And I swear to God, I wanted to pull my fucking face off. We're dealing with this thing where it's like we are emulating bad 60s movies to make bad 80s movies. Mm, doesn't do anything for me. All right. Well, look, moving on, Scott, this is for many people who listen to this podcast, your childhood. 
is about to get punched in the face. And I, I just want to apologize in advance because not knowing how Mr. Weinberg feels, I can tell you, I hate the never-ending story. For anyone who's ever imagined a fantasy, believed in a legend, made a wish, or had a dream, this is a journey to the enchanted world of the never-ending story. All right, now, now here we go. I, I think that there is this thing that we deal with with nostalgia. It's almost like you have a scripted answer. And, and it doesn't mean you're lying. It just means that it's like the stock answer. Princess Bride, of course, love it. Without even thinking. And then you say never-ending story, of course, love it. When's the last time you watched it? I wasn't a fan in, in 1984. Really? Okay, now that interests me because I was a huge fan of... This and Willow, uh, Legend, anything that could have been con- construed as high fantasy. And I was the opposite. I wanted to like this stuff. I certainly was interested in fantasy, but I had read Michael N's book, and the book is okay. It's not my favorite. I don't think it's a terrific, oh my God, amazing fantasy novel. But first of all, I think this thing is ugly. I think this is one of the ugliest studio movies of the decade. I think it looks like it was designed by Eurotrash cokehead child molesters. Even Falcor? Oh, are you kidding? The giant white penis dragon? It's the ugliest thing. It's a puppy face. It's despicable. I hate the design. And this movie looks like it was directed by Wolfgang Peterson while trying to start a gang war between the first and second unit. He wouldn't tell them what the other one was doing, and then he'd insult. First unit said that your footage sucks. Like, it's awful. Now, here's the thing that I hear over and over from people that love this movie. The first word out of their mouth will be Artex. Oh, but Artex, and I get it. You cried as a child when you saw them kill a horse. If you give me a horse in a room full of children, I will make them cry by killing that horse. That is not Nobody difficult. give this man a horse and a room full of that children. That is not hard to do. <laughs> I can make them cry, damn it. Uh, yeah, very manipulative, especially when you're dealing with a young audience. Especially there's no buildup to it. The horse just is his horse for about 10 minutes, and then it dies. There's no, There's nothing special about the horse. They don't build up to it. But I get it. It's a traumatic memory. Here's where it loses me right away. I think the opening of the film is nightmarishly bad. His dad sits him down at the table to exposition at him for 15 minutes about his dead mom, which is a scene that can be handled, as it is in the book, in a line of dialogue. Dad is an unimportant character and not a character. And that scene between the two of them feels like it's an hour long. I don't, there's very little about this film that I like. The the framing story is that he's running from bullies and he's got an unhappy home life. And, and so he escapes into the world of this book in which he learns all kinds of valuable lessons about believing in himself and trusting other people. And, and then he gets a magic penis dragon that he chases the bullies with at the end. It feels uh, very insincere to me. Like I mentioned the princess bride, that movie reeks of sincerity. I've seen this movie four times throughout my life, and I still am not sure, like, what he's supposed to be doing. I, It's all very spacey and new agey, and that would be fine if your movie wasn't geared at eight-year-olds. Is it fine to just make a quest film where the quest is, ah, the, the girl, and she's and she's sad, and there's nothing, and it's coming, and then you gotta go do the thing, and then you, and there's a thing that you grab, and then she's fine, and the... With Labyrinth or with Princess Bride, there are characters and there is a screenplay and there is verbal wit and there is something else going on. This movie, I I don't remember any of the characters and I just rewatched it a week ago. I also just reread the book. I want to thank you for jumping in front of this bullet because I watched it, didn't care for it nearly as much as I did 20 years ago and thought, uh-oh, <laughs> people are <laughs> I think it's a terrible movie. I think it's a movie that because of when it came out, people have a certain attachment. I think the score is poison. I don't like the score. It's sugary and crappy and sounds like somebody fell asleep on their drum machine. I would defy you to really tell me anything about any of the characters in the movie. And the whole thing is shot on sound stages, which is, you know, fine. You have to build the world. But they spend so much energy and space building the world that there's like 11 feet of stage left for anything to happen in. So when they try to stage action, like, say, at the beginning of the movie where the racing snail is running away and the rock biter is supposed to chase it. 
He drives over the same four feet of soundstage over and over. All the action feels like it's done like that. Like he had no room to shoot anything because they spent all this time building these giant sets that nobody can interact with. It doesn't work. I don't know how Wolfgang Peterson had a Hollywood career after this. I don't. I'm baffled. So you think critics kind of missed the boat? Because I remember back in the day, this was pretty well received. I would be startled to go back and read good review. I would be very curious to read what they think works about it. Yeah, I don't think anything lands. And I am not somebody who is just immediately won over by, okay, there's a quest, so it's fine. No, it's not. You have to still tell me something of worth, and you still have to create characters of worth. It's not enough that it's just a fantasy. I need it to be a good fantasy, or I don't care. And this is not a good fantasy. All right, and if you thought that The NeverEnding Story was not a very good film, yeah, holy shit, sit down, strap yourself in, and stick a pie in your mouth, because it's time for a piece of absolute garbage. In the beginning, like all men, they were born. But from then on, all similarities ended. Cheech and Chong are the Corsican brothers. I'm your brother, Luis. Lion. My brother was in Mexican. Look, it's me. Twins so close, they actually had each other's feelings. So that even when they fought, they truly felt for each other. Okay, okay, okay. Go believe that. Yeah. Cheech and Chong are the Corsican brothers. I understand if you dislike Cheech and Chong, if this is where you were introduced to them, because this is as bad a comedy as I've sat through for this podcast so far. This feels like a distant cousin to slapstick of another kind, doesn't it? There's a sequence at the beginning of this film in which Cheech and Chong play baby twins of themselves, and they're, if I poke myself in the forehead, then Drew goes, ow! It's slapstick of another kind for people who really hate the gays. Oh my god. All right, so I don't even know where to begin. Let's start with this. The weirdest fucking thing about this movie is the constant references to Barry Lyndon. There are repeated scenes that are scored with Kubrick's score that are clearly meant to be sort of a takeoff on how he shoots period stuff. And I want to know what psychopath decided to do Kubrick jokes in the middle of this giant used douchebag of a movie. It's a framing device that frames nothing, a character gimmick that goes nowhere, vile, stupid, hateful, so much mugging. That's the podcast version of mugging. I'm just, look how crazy I am. The two of them in this movie are so shameless. The confidence of these two men is repugnant. (laughs) Clearly, I think Three Stooges was on their mind. They're trying to do a physical humor they've never really done, which is the hitting each other and the poking each other and the making each other hurt. Scott, what rating is this film? Don't look, but what rating is this movie? This motion picture is rated PG, parental guidance suggested. That is batshit crazy. Forget Temple of Doom, forget Gremlins. This is a broken PG. This is madness. Roy Dotis plays a character named the Evil Fucker. That's his name. How is that a PG? And he spends most of the movie in bondage drag. If you pattern your entire film making fun of gay men and dicks and and anything feminine. How long is the sequence where he ends up chained to a wheel as his sex toy? It must go on for, and I don't think I'm exaggerating, 20 minutes out of an 80-minute film. And, and, you know, on one hand, you'd say, all right, find a silver lining. I could see they're tired of playing themselves. Why can't we do costume comedy like other people do? Like, <laughs> Okay, just write one. Like those great comedies, uh, The Wicked Lady and Zorro the Gay Blade. That's what we want to <laughs> do. Um, and, and it's just... <laughs> Why should they have all the fun? <laughs> well, and, and I, all right, in their defense, I will say that both Cheech Marin and Thomas Chong would go on to do much, much better films in a much smaller capacity, and they are obviously ridiculously talented guys. That's no question. Oh, I'm I, and I'm on record already. I'm a Cheech and Chong fan, but from the early days when it was just Cheech and Chong being Cheech and Chong, films did them no favors, and the longer they had to keep coming up with new ideas for feature films that weren't just let's be Cheech and Chong some more the further they got from what made them funny. I don't recognize this Cheech and Chong. This, there's nothing here that I identify as what makes me laugh. It reeks of desperation. It really honestly feels like someone said, 
all right, we'll finance your next movie, but this whole you guys playing yourselves and running around L.A. and smoking weed and just being disrespectful and chaotic, that's over. You have to actually play roles. And they go, yeah, okay. And you can see them, like, wanting to go in a new direction, but you, you can't blame anyone but them. Tommy Chong directed this. They both wrote it. Oh, yeah. Oh, and it's, in places, really unwatchable. And it's not even that it's not funny. It's that it's not coherent. Hey, I'm a screenwriter and I got something for you, producer. I am so excited to hear that. Let me hear it. Oh, good God, I'm not pitching porn. <laughs> yeah, bring it on. All right, you see that computer that you have there in your corner? I do. That giant 1984 PC that does nothing but, like, collate recipes? You see that? Yes. What if that computer was Cyrano de Bergerac? I would kill it. I would drive a stake through its heart. That's terrifying. I got this screenplay. It's about a guy who spills wine on his computer. It wakes up and falls in love with his upstairs neighbor as played by Virginia Madsen. It's a romantic comedy called Electric Dreams. What's your preference? Apple? Pear? Wang? Oh, listen, I don't know anything about computers. Nobody does. Miles just bought a computer, and he got more than he bargained for. You're talking? Madeline just moved in upstairs, and she's the girl he's falling for. I can't play that for her. I want to squeeze you, lick you, pucker up, and kiss you. You make her sound like a lemon. When Edgar comes between them... I want to meet her. Things start to get electric. I think uh, calling it a romantic comedy is a generous description of genre. You are being very, very, very... Well, uh, it's about two people who uh, have romance, and there is ostensible comedy. The second point is where I might argue with you. I was on board. The advertising for this one hooked me. I love the posters for it. The poster for this emphasized the soundtrack more than the movie. And it had a devil-horned computer. And, dude, that was all it took for me. I was on board. I thought that was a great hook. I didn't love it then, but I think I wanted to like it more than I did. And I told myself I liked it more than I did. Looking at it now, I'm baffled by it. The feature debut of a very prolific music video director named Steve Barron. He would go on to direct the 1990 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And he's, to, in my mind, like a Phil Juanu Maybe, I don't know if he's considered a good film director or not, but he always did colorful, interesting genre films. Electric Dreams is not very good, but it is unique and kind of, you know, uh, an asterisk in the uh, in the annals of the 80s. The premise is basically that uh, he gets a computer, he doesn't know what to do with it, and there's a silly accident, the thing becomes sentient, the computer starts to emulate the violin sounds coming from the cellist upstairs, plays it back, and she thinks it's him downstairs playing with her. There's a nice sequence in the middle. It's very 80s and very perfume commercially. The duet sequence is actually kind of well cut. And it's because Steve Barron is a music video director. So, of course, when it's just music and images, that's when the film comes alive. It's also 20 minutes of plot in a 90-minute movie. I'm with you on the, the idea that when it comes alive, it comes alive because he kind of gets out of his own way and he lets the music sort of work and... Yeah, the, when the Jeff Lynn stuff kicks in, this movie really does have a great, unique sound. And there's some Georgie Moroder that works. And yeah, there's moments that are fun and playful. Uh, Bud Court plays Edgar, the computer. He does the voice of the computer, and it's processed or a lot of stuff. He doesn't get to give as much a performance as you believe he's going to from the way they sort of sell you the movie. Like, he's going to really end up asserting himself. They just cast him and went, okay, he's a cult name, that's enough. But there's no performance there. It's not his fault, but there's very little Bud Court personality. Yeah. There's not a lot between him and the guy. And I and Lenny Van Dolan is kind of a train wreck. Um, Virginia Madsen totally works. She sells the notion that music means everything to her. Her character is the one thing in the movie that has like a real pulse. So those sequences where the movie is kind of dizzy in love with her probably work best because it does feel like she makes that make sense. They both would have been perfect if it was just a music video. But as it turned out, she was the very good actor and he was just kind of okay. If this was like a an episode of an MTV Twilight Zone show, this probably would have been terrific. And we'd still be talking about how wonderfully it played at 30 minutes. But yeah, if you're a hardcore computer geek and you want to see some ridiculous technology and how it works in a, in a movie, 
just watch what goes on to an Apple IIe in fucking. In this yeah, movie. you remember it's in the eighties, computers were magic. They were weird, dark magic. You all you have to do is type something into a computer, and it can do anything. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, uh, but you know what computers can't do? Computers cannot capture my heart like Jim Henson did. That's right. They can't replace the Muppets. Jump on board for big time fun. What are we waiting for? Let's go to Broadway! The Muppets are hitting the Big Apple. Buffalo Sacco's far out. Right on. In search of their big break. We sold the show. The producer wants to put it on Broadway. Come on, everybody! New York City will never be the same. Here we go! Together on. Together again. Jim Henson's The Muppets Take Manhattan. My very second favorite Muppet movie. What is the best? All right, reply to 80s all over on Twitter. What is the best Muppet movie not called The Muppet Movie? Right. <laughs> yeah. Let's just take the given off the table. We know what the best one is. But yeah. I like or love every one of them. Uh, I just think this is a, a bit more substantial and a bit more fun and sweet than Muppet Caper. This one hit me at the right moment where I was just old enough to like start feeling like I'm a little too old for my old friends. So when they sing in this song, Touching a hand, wondering why it's time for saying goodbye. Oh my god, I cry every fucking time, and I'm not kidding. This movie makes me cry. I love it. It's essentially a reworking of the original plot, only this time they're going to put on a show on Broadway. And it's about reuniting, it's about leaving and growing up. It's also the only Muppet film to include Dabney Coleman. Dabney Coleman is first rate. Believe, Mr. Coleman, it's the truth. Mm -hmm. How about a shout out for Dabney Coleman out there? (laughs) The original Muppet performers had already kind of started to break up by this point. That was such a special group of people and such a special group of comedy brains that you know, when we look back at the Muppet show or we look at the first Muppet movie, it really is the combination of everybody. We credit Jim, we credit Frank Oz a lot, but it's all those guys. And it's the fact that they were all still together and kind of pushing each other. So the idea that this was a chance for them to kind of get back together if they did all gone in little slightly different directions and make one last real Muppet movie. It really does. It feels like the real Muppets because you have Jerry Nelson and Richard Hunt and Dave Golas and you have Jim Henson and Frank Oz still playing all the classic characters with Frank directing. Nobody gets it the way the Muppet performers do. Nobody understands how to shoot the Muppets the way the Muppet performers do. It's like dancers shooting dancing. You just have a different sense of what sells the joke or what makes them feel real. For years and years and years, my cousin, my sister, we would all do the I'm Gil, this is Bill, and this is Jill. I don't know why that's funny, Drew. I don't know why it's funny. Uh, I believe this is the movie. Am I? You could correct me. You are more of a Muppet scholar than I am, but if this is not the debut of the underrated and very funny Rizzo the Rat. And this was the introduction of Steve Whitmire, who became a major, major, major part of the Muppet puzzle, of course, moving forward. It's kind of the passing of the torch. There's a lot of old and new sort of combined here. At this point, Jim was already thinking about like how to push this stuff further, the technology of it further. I love the way he nods to the first film and some of the visual gags here and the way they nod at what you think you're going to see in a Muppet movie. Like you said, saying goodbye is a pretty terrific song. As they go, somebody's getting married is a terrific musical number as well. When they nail a Muppet musical number, there are very few things that are more joyous or more fun. That's the other part that always blows my mind of these guys. Imagine being a genius like Jim Henson or a terrific filmmaker like Frank Oz. And in addition to everything else, not only are you a good character performer, but you're also a pretty good singer. You're also able to really sell a song. And that skill set, the fact that they do all these things so well, is part of what really does make the original Muppet guys so beautiful and so special. And yeah, I I love this one. I think Oz has a, uh, a terrific eye here. I think he really is having a ton of fun 
directing the Muppets. You can tell that he loves these characters. He's having such a good time. One great aspect of any Muppet movie is running down the uh, human cameo list. Uh, we mentioned the, the wonderful Dabney Coleman, who, of course, plays a rotten bastard who is t- terrible to our friend Gonzo. Dabney, how dare you? Yeah. Dabney Coleman is the best. We also got uh, James Coco, uh, Gregory Hines, Art Carney, Linda Lavin, who I think kind of got forgotten as the years went on, but as a kid was huge in our lives because she was Alice. And Linda Lavin, to me, was like a TV star, at least on par with anyone. Uh, Joan Rivers, Elliot Gould, Liza Minnelli, and Brooke Shields. You know who I'm surprised is not in this? Eddie Murphy. Oh, God, could you imagine? Let's talk about not only is it a great gig for a celebrity, but let's talk about the way good actors interact with the Muppet characters. There is such a respect, and it's never, look at me slumming, I'm doing something silly with a bunch of puppets. No, it is always, it felt like an honor. Not only do people love to come and play with them, but, and I've seen this happen, the moment you're face-to-face with a Muppet, I don't care who you are, and I don't care how cool you are, and I don't care what experience you have, you're going to believe it. The Muppets are magic. If I met Fozzie Bear, I would lose my freaking mind. When they did the junket for the Muppets, the Jason Siegel one, and I took the boys and, and we had the whole day there, Toshi completely, even though you could see Steve Whitmire sitting on the floor talking to him, Toshi knew that Kermit the Frog was real and talked to him like he was real. There was a dude from Mexico, a reporter from Mexico, went into the room before us. We were watching on the monitor. He walked in, he sat down, they brought Kermit up. Kermit said, hi there. Dude burst into tears and then stood up, walked over and just hugged Kermit. And they were like, yeah, this has happened uh, three or four other times today. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's going to stop. You're going to make me cry. That is not just a puppet. I don't care what you say. That is not just like felt and plastic when those kids look at it like that. And it's beautiful. It was a pleasure. It was so much fun to play. You could tell, which is why it surprises me. Because like I said, we're at that moment now where in the mid 80s, mid 1984, If you were to ask me who the next giant star was about to be, it was pretty clear there was all this energy around him, which brings us to our next movie, Eddie Murphy in the indefensible Best Defense. Buckle up, we're going into hyperspace. Eddie Murphy's testing it. Dudley Moore's designed it. Stop the tank, please! So it's no surprise when this super tank goes out of control. I guess we made a wrong turn somewhere! Catch Eddie Murphy in Best Defense. What is Best Defense, dude? What is this? Well, Best Defense looks to me like a perfect example of a movie that they made one time, realized it was a nightmare, tried to fix, the fix didn't work, and then they just kind of pushed it into theaters and hoped no one noticed. It is a mess from start to finish. And we did not discuss this ahead of time, but I think you're exactly right. This was a Dudley Moore comedy, and it was unwatchable. They threw a shitload of money at Eddie Murphy, filmed some scenes that have nothing to do with the rest of the movie. They never interact on screen together, and we'll get to the ridiculous break in in their sequences. And it feels like they just glued on some Eddie Murphy sequences as a band-aid. And the premise of the movie is that Dudley Moore is a guy who works for a defense contractor. They're trying to build this super weapon. He's in a bar one night. A guy who has the missing piece that they need for their thing gets killed. He's building a gyroscope. And this other guy happens to just give him the one item that he needs. This makes no sense if he was a writer and this man happened to give him a magical pen then that could kind of make sense because writers and pens are fairly common. But this is about a guy who just happens to give someone the key piece to a gyroscope. And then it's a breakthrough and he pretends it was his and he starts to climb the ranks. It's a vintage Dudley Moore scumbag character and he looks as bored by it as we are. I hate the stock Dudley Moore character and it's not Arthur. It's this passive aggressive petty, horny, arrogant little man, and it's not the actor. It's the character. Yeah, it's the writing they did for him. They kept writing this character for him that is unpleasant, and he is such a spineless little piece of crap in this movie that you aren't rooting for him, so if it's going to be a dark comedy about the worst guy in the room being the success, okay, 
you got to make Doctor Strange love. It has to be smart. If it's stupid, people aren't going to know what who is the target. This movie is wretched. They make it real clear coming in that the company he works for is on its last legs. And then in the next scene, they're doing this ultimate super important test to the gyroscope. And then he spends the entire test talking about his coworker, Helen Shaver, to George. He's like, first he says, how'd you like to see her naked? How'd you like to put that nipple in your mouth? How'd you like to touch her sex? And it just keeps going. And I'm like, first off, this is not funny at all. Second of all, in the earlier scene, we just established that his company is going to die. And then he spends the entire test verbally jerking off while Helen Shaver, who is given nothing funny to do in this movie, pitch to me how you're going to fix it with Eddie Murphy. This is what I assume Willard Huck and Gloria Katz pitch to Paramount. Oh, wait, you mean the same people who made Radioland Murders and Howard the Duck? Not at this point, they hadn't. At this point, they have the track record of, hey, we're the people that helped make American Graffiti and probably did something on Star Wars, or at least we'll say we did. They are, at this point, still somewhat the young firebrand friends of Lucas and Spielberg, and they have a lot of heat around them right now. And they are just coming off of the writing gig on Temple of Doom. So they are big shit in town. They are, no doubt, one of the hotter producing writing teams in town. And then they turn in that first Dudley Moore version. And I've got to imagine Paramount thought about just pulling the plug. Like, we can't save this. This is awful. I would love to read an oral history of this movie. So the the thing that they build to try and make a framework around it that works is that Eddie Murphy is part of a tank team. They're the ones testing the tank a year and a half later that Dudley Moore and his team build in the film. And the tank stuff with Eddie Murphy is awful. It's like not his fault. They stuck him in a tank with two gentlemen who don't speak English, and they said, Riff, and he does what he's paid to do. He does. He- well, it looks like they gave him no time in the tank ahead of time. Like they put him in the outfit, threw him in the tank and said, we got to get this by tomorrow. Let's go. There's nothing he does or says in this that is funny or that indicates that he even knows what fucking movie he's in. Oh, I- how about how the film opens with a sequence of Eddie Murphy having wild sex with a beautiful woman, which I assume was in his contract, cut with Dudley Moore trying in just a pathetic fashion to have sex with Kate Capshaw, who, yes, there is a scene in the car where she sits and she's humming the Indiana Jones theme. Mm-hmm. There you go. There's quality for you people right there. It is just nothing but a collection of innuendo jokes. The stuff with Helen Shaver is so humiliating. Oh, well, I need the... Uh, this is my Helen Shaver, by the way. <clears throat> well, I... Need the gyroscope to be firm, Drew. Yeah. Does it pump? Is it hard? Oh, I need it to pump quickly and hardishly. Oh, I'm shocked. We're going to get into the uh, the further war crimes of Willard Huck and Glory Katz as we proceed through this decade. But I want to move on. Do you know who might be one of the greatest double entendre artists of all time? We are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. Electric word, life, it means forever, and that's a mighty long time. But I'm here to tell you, there's something else. The afterworld. A world of never-ending happiness. You can always see the sun. Day or night. So when you call up that shrink in Beverly Hills, you know the one, Doctor, everything will be alright. Instead of asking how much of your time is left, ask them how much of your mind, baby. Cause in this life, things are much harder than in the afterworld. This life, you're on your own. And if the elevator tries to break you down. Break us down. Oh no, let's go. Let's go crazy. 
too much for the one thing that meant everything. His music. Prince. The story. The struggle. The movie. Boy, oh boy, Drew, this might be the episode in which people just want to pillory us uh, because, man, I like the look of this movie and I love the album. I don't like this movie. Oh, well, that's okay. I like it enough for both of us then. Good, 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 good. All right. Well, here's my my nitpicks and then I'm going to sit back. It's one of the oldest issues that we have is that virtually everyone in the movie is awful. Even the person we're supposed to care the most about, and a byproduct of that is, I don't really care about what happens to you because everybody is so rotten. There's very little rooting interest. When the movie has any songs from the album, I perk up and I am into it. And it reminds me of being young and happy in the 1980s. But it's just a plot. Take out all the songs and just make it an A to B to C story. It feels very melodramatic and soapy and familiar. Uh, I would not argue with that, but I would also say that I don't think this movie exists without the songs. This isn't a case of, okay, well, we've got the script, and then we hired Prince, so let's jam some songs in there. It 100% built as a showcase for his persona, and it is very stylized, and it is very heightened, and I don't think it's terribly real, but I do love the world, and boy... Did I fall for it when I was 14 years old and I saw this thing the first time? This was one of the ones that I went back to over and over that summer. This was right as I was trying to puzzle out the world of girls. To me, that was still the big mystery that I was trying to... Prince was this place where all of it kind of felt dangerous and wild. And it was a major kind of moment forward for me. And it felt very adult and grown up. I look back at this film now... What it gets right is the same thing that Rebel Without a Cause gets right, which is it captures a person at the very height of their charisma, right as they figured their charisma out. Clearly, Purple Rain, even though I don't care for it, the, the movie as a whole, that very much head and shoulders better than a typical rock star vehicle. Like this and Hard to Hold are not even in the same universe. But if this was his like big introduction to himself as a persona, why is he such a dick throughout this movie because his dad is he's and he treats her terribly in this movie he is awful to apollonia in this film and i don't think it's an accident i think the movie is about a guy who is living out the cycle again he's 100 going to be what his dad is which is a guy who's talented but allows his anger and his shittiness to stop him from being any good at what he does and he's trying to figure out how not to be his dad in this movie this whole film is just him struggling with, I don't But he never be. does. The only thing he does is have, like, find out at the end that people like a song. That's it. True. I, I mean, the, the question is, at the end of this movie, will the things that happen between his mother and father finally push him to be a better person in terms of how he treats Apollonia or other people? I don't know. The movie doesn't really end in a place where it answers the question. Again, it's all done in, in montage and visuals. This is not a film where they ask Prince to act a bunch. I think the best actor in the movie and the most engaging person in the film is Morris Day. I could watch Morris Day and Jerome all day long. I love every second the time is in this movie. I wouldn't have articulated this as a kid because I wasn't quite so smart back then, but now I are. And here's what I say. Cut all the drama out of this movie, stay in the nightclub, put in four more musical numbers. That's a much better film. And that, I guess, is Sign of the Times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's, but that's not what he wanted to make. I really like this. I like the version of the movie that he made. Daddy was abusive, and now I'm abusive. That's like 40s boilerplate. That's nothing. There's I get no- it, and I still like the way the movie plays. I, I know it's formula, and 100% it is, but it's the way it is played. It is the particular charisma of the people. It is the details of the Minneapolis scene. It is a vibe that I had not seen on film before. There really hadn't been anything that sounded quite like this. 
this. I love seeing the revolution in the film. I love Wendy and Lisa. I Again, maybe that's because I am a Prince fan, and I stayed a Prince fan after this, but I love seeing them in the film. I love them as characters in the movie. I wish this had been Vanity instead of Apollonia. I wish it had been a little bit more true to what Prince was going through at the moment, but it's him telling the Vanity story with somebody else, which actually seems fitting because it was all interchangeable to him. He was the thing at the top and everybody else were his chess pieces. So look, I I think it's very revealing in some ways. I don't think it's always in the ways he meant, but it's honest. It's very much Prince. I'm curious to see where we uh, land on this last one, uh, because here's another one that is deeply loved by the people who deeply love it and uh, not necessarily deeply loved by everyone else. Uh, let's let's get into The Last Starfighter. You stand between us and the black terror of the Kodash. For every Earthling who's ever dreamed of adventures beyond the stars <laughs> comes the astonishing story of one who made it. Alex? Hi, Max. Alex Rogan is the last Starfighter. Rated PG. Now at select theaters. Check newspapers for locations and showtime. This is a ridiculously charming, funny, family-friendly, but not kiddified, as they would say back then. It is about a young boy whose video game prowess earns him a place on a galactic defense force. He meets uh, Robert Preston, steals the entire film. He's just Robert Preston in outer space. He's just... As himself. Perhaps a little too quickly ends up being like the uh, savior and saves the universe almost almost instantly. If I had one major complaint about the movie, it's that like the actual adventure part of it is seems rather truncated. But I think it holds up really well. I think it's one of the very best films inspired by the success of Star Wars. I think it's got a really solid act one. I think they made a disastrous choice at some point in production to steer into the CGI as an early attempt to use computers in place of models for effects. It's an eyesore at this point, even in 84, it didn't work. It doesn't look finished. It's so rough to me to watch a movie where so much good stuff is going on. And then the moment they cut to a spaceship or the flying car or out, doesn't bother me. Yeah. No, I I get, I totally, to me, that would like, watching early, early stop motion before they learned some better techniques and faulting it for not having those techniques yet. I disagree. I think it's a choice they made where they, they clearly thematically, the idea is, well, it's a computer game is what the call is. So why don't we steer into that? Why don't we go ahead and we know computers are coming. We know that we're going to get there with effects. Why don't we be the first? Why don't we be cutting edge? I would have looked at a test and said, because that's why. There's no weight to it. It doesn't work. I don't buy it. It doesn't look like there's people in it. Nope. All right. Put the choppy, formative, uh, early digital effects in a Okay, so I'll put them aside. Now, my problem is I think it's got a good first act. I think the villain sucks. I think the entire world building sucks. I don't buy anything once they leave the planet. And I wanted to, this viewing more than any other that I've ever had, I was like, please, please work for me. I And it's funny because you mentioned Star Wars, and that first act is 100% Star Wars. It's Luke, come to Tashi Station with it. I got to do the power converters. It's the same exact, and they do it better than most people did it. And they found the right cast, and it's appealing. And then Robert Preston, God bless him, is so charismatic and is the right call for that character But the moment they leave the planet, I don't buy anything that happens. I don't like the world building. Can we talk for a minute about what a ridiculously charming woman Catherine Mary Stewart is? Are you kidding? She's good in this. But again, the beta unit stuff doesn't work for me. I think it's better than the stuff that happens in outer space. The beta unit stuff on Earth, to me, is interesting enough to make me think there was a much more elaborate B story and they trimmed it down to the bone. But it's it's better than the outer space stuff. The outer space stuff, I that villain is awful. Back, hold up for a sec. It's almost like the attitude of the villain in Galaxy Quest. He's The villain is not the point. 
He's literally a video game villain in just that he's just a giant ball you have to shoot down, basically. I mean, I don't think he's a character. I don't think there's any character to the bad guys. I don't think there's I don't think the frontier is an interesting idea. I don't think the world that they build is particularly interesting or compelling. I don't want to see a part two based on this because I don't care what happens in outer space. The only thing that really is interesting in this is the Earth stuff. And the Earth stuff is fine. It's good. I like the way Nick Castle directs it. And I wanted that movie the entire time. Every time they leave Earth, I just don't give a shit. Yeah, I, I will give you that a lot of this space stuff in Act 2 and 3 is maybe not as impactful uh, or as memorable. Because uh, when I think of this movie, I generally think of the first half and the very, very end. But having revisited it for the show... I still think it's perfectly entertaining in like a fifth generation Battlestar Galactica episode. You know, like it's not the greatest plot in the world. That, that's not enough, man. And I and especially for a movie that starts as strong as this for it to buckle under its own weight by the end. I'm not going to cut it a break simply because it's charming before it fails. I don't think it ever fails. I think it's a very entertaining movie. Uh, I think that... What what does he do at the end that wins? What is the ultimate move that he is the last starfighter does? I remember it as clear as day. He flips the switch, turns out the gyroscope that Dudley Moore was working worked. And then the computer comes to life and plays the cello. And that's July of 1984. Beep, boop. It's going to stay weird the next couple of months. 1984, for as iconic as it is, Gets really, really strange for August, September, October. Trust me, next time we have got Stevie Wonder's Oscar-winning earworm, a cult horror misfire that gave its name to a landmark movie website, Clint Eastwood getting nasty, and a naked lady Tarzan. All of that, plus Red Electroids, Jack Flack, the oh-so-controversial Lambdas, and the birth of the PG-13. Be here in two weeks, everybody, for August of 1984. (laughs) 